0: Lord, we do thank you for this beautiful morning. Lord, we pray that as we remember that you are lifted up, that you are seated, that there is a king reigning over this universe, even when it doesn't feel like it, Lord. There is someone interceding for us. And Lord, as we step into that reality, we pray that you would encounter us with your word, that your will might be done on earth as it is in heaven, that you might be king on earth as you are in heaven. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, for the past several weeks, we've been in a sermon series, kind of a mini-series, within the book of Ephesians on relationships. And today, we wrap up that portion of Ephesians, and we move towards the end over the next couple of weeks. But I want to go back to the question that I asked at the very beginning of the series. If, if you were here, you may recall how are your relationships? How are your relationships? And I suggested that, that might be a better way to answer this question how am I doing? Because our relationships are so fundamental to who we are. I also made a promise on that Sunday that if we took Paul's teaching on relationships seriously and we began to really apply it, that it could transform our relationships. And that things would go well for us. He says a similar version of that when he speaks to parent and children, particularly to the children. He says, things will go well for you. Well, some of you by now might be ready to ask for A refund. Because as I've heard feedback from several people, as I've looked at relationships in my own life over the past three or four weeks, it it seems like it's actually brought a lot of stuff to the surface. Rather than giving us this immediate infusion of peace and, and happy feelings, it's actually disrupted some things. And I don't know, maybe you felt that as you've considered this teaching. We might be ready to label Paul as a disturber of the peace, as some did in his day, But if it's brought stuff up for us, and it has for me, let me offer you this encouragement. It's working. The Word of God has gone to work in us, and it's actually doing something. Hebrews chapter 4 reminds us that this Word of God, this isn't just an old, dry, dusty book, that it's actually living and active. It's sharper than a sword, and it penetrates us, and it discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And so as we consider something like God's Word on relationships, we better expect that it's going to begin to do something in us, even if it starts with disturbing some things. God is at work, so turn into it and embrace it and allow this teaching to have its effect. Well, today we're going to consider the final section of Paul's teaching about this relational practice of submission. It's so what we started talking about three, four weeks ago. Um, he's, we've looked at that wives and husbands and, and how that practice gets worked out there. We've looked at children and parents and how it applies there. We've talked about it more generally and how this mutual submission, we can all um, submit to each other. But today, the last particular relationship we're going to look at is between slaves and masters. And the reason why Paul has picked these three sets of relationships, marriage and then parenting and kids and then slaves and masters, those are the relationships that made up an ancient household. And so that's where he's really speaking into. But it can apply much more widely. So if you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and turn them to Ephesians 6, verses five through nine, and we will take a look. The first two sets of relationships are really Pretty familiar to us, wives and husbands, children and parents. But um, fortunately, the slavery one is not. We have some idea of it from our own troubled history as a nation, but uh, most of us, hopefully all of us, have not experienced it personally. Um, I want to set the stage a little bit about wh- well, what was slavery in the ancient Roman Empire? What was it like? How was it different from the slavery that that we grew up in our history books learning about uh, in the American South? Because there are some differences. Well, in the Roman Empire, at the time Paul was writing, slavery was widespread. It was part of the social fabric. Now, no one knows exactly how many slaves there were, there, there were back then, but some estimate that it could have been up to a third of the population. And so if that's the case, um, the early church being made up of the population of these different places in the Roman Empire would have had a significant number of slaves in it. Unlike our history, slavery back then was not based on race. You could become a slave through all sorts of ways. Through birth, being born to someone who was a slave. You could be sold or abandoned into it by your parents. You could get captured in war. You could be unable to pay your debts. And then sometimes, surprisingly, people would actually voluntarily put themselves in slavery to improve their situation in life. Slavery was a lot more varied back then than it was uh, in our world. Now, many slaves were still poorly treated. They were dehumanized. But other slaves actually fared pretty well. Even compared with the free peasants of the day, um, they had maybe a little bit better life. There were opportunities for social advancement, especially true with what are called household slaves, which is the kind that Paul is talking about here. Um, Slaves could be found across the different professions in the ancient world. They could be educated. They could actually save money and buy their freedom. So, there were some better conditions compared to the slavery that we know, but it was still slavery. It was still a person being treated as a piece of property, and there was still this huge social divide between slaves and the rest of society. But in the church, a master and a slave were now in the same congregation, They were brothers in Christ, and they attended the same meetings. They shared in the same communion table, and so the church was creating this social phenomenon that didn't exist before of these people walking in relationship, and so Paul is going to speak into that. Another question that comes to the surface when we look at slavery in the Bible is, well, was Paul condoning this practice? Because he didn't come right out and say, Christians must stop having slaves, period. Period. And so many people say, well, he seems to support it. Well, is that the case? A few things are worth noting. Um, First of all, the early church, including Paul, did not have massive social change as its goal. If they had, if they had said, we're going to end slavery right now, the whole movement of the Christian movement would have been squelched. They would have shut it down. Their goal instead was to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and to bear witness to his kingdom. But by doing that, they actually began to subvert the social evils of their day. So Paul's not writing a a treatise on the institution of slavery and how Christians should respond. He's just trying to apply the gospel to the relationships that are found in households, slaves and masters. So we read it about here in Ephesians. We see more of it in the book of Philemon, if you've ever read or studied that book. But when you study these books and what Paul actually says, it actually undermines the institution of slavery. Because when you put the gospel into structures of oppression and injustice, those structures will eventually be overturned. Now sadly, we know that it took a long, long time for that to be the case, even in Christian countries, and that's a great evil. It's wrong that slave-owning Christians in the South used the scriptures, kind of manipulated the scriptures in order to support slavery. But the gospel that Paul preaches, his words here in Ephesians, uh, actually undermines the institution. I think you'll see that as we go along. So that's a little bit of background on slavery, but again, before we jump into the text, let me talk a little bit about application. Application. Again, hopefully none of us have experienced, personally, slavery, although I should note that slavery exists in the world in a more modern form. Human trafficking, sex slavery, Christians uh, need to be involved in that, addressing that. It's not completely void in our world anymore. In fact, it's a big problem, even here in North Carolina. But for us, personally, it's probably not an issue, and so how might we apply the text? Well, I think it actually speaks profoundly to the modern workplace, the sort of the economic culture that we find ourselves in. We can fairly easily submit uh, substitute employees and employers for slaves and masters, and the impact and teaching of the text will be similar. And so keeping that kind of application in mind, I want to walk through this text and just make some observations, and then we'll wrap up at the end by considering a few reflection questions for what it means for us in society. So Ephesians 6, verse 5 uh, Paul starts in the same way that he's started uh, the other sections of this part of Ephesians. Slaves. Slaves. He addresses them first, or maybe your text says bond servants. Again, as I've noted every week, the simple fact that he's addressing slaves is a sign of the gospel. Don't miss that. Slavery is this dehumanizing institution, but by speaking first to them, Paul is humanizing them. He's saying you are free, moral, spiritual beings. You're a full part of the Christian community. Simply by writing that one word, slaves, he has begun to subvert the whole system of slavery in the Roman Empire. Well, he'll go on from there for four verses, and he'll instruct slaves how they should relate to their masters and why. If you're in any sort of job, you probably have a boss some sort of person over you. Or maybe you're self-employed, but you still have people that you serve, your customer. And so drawing on this text, I want to apply it and suggest four ways that we could take it into our workplaces. So first, do what you're asked to do. Do what you're asked to do. Seems a pretty obvious thing to say. Paul commands slaves to obey their earthly masters. Now, the word obey, that doesn't make as much sense in the modern workplace, but doing what we're asked to do is a good thing. It's a type of submission. It's voluntary. Uh, We can choose to do what we're asked to do in the same way that children can choose to obey. It's not always easy, though. Your pride will get in the way. We'll think, well, I don't want to do that or I don't want to do it in your way. I have a better idea. This is where submission comes in. We lay down our rights, our, our desire to assert ourselves, and we want to freely come under another by doing what they ask us to do. Now, again, we're in a different context than slavery, and so hopefully you're in a healthy work atmosphere uh, where you can share your opinion, where you can ask for clarification, where you can actually have a conversation about it. But at the end of the day, it's good for us to be in that posture of saying, yeah, I want to submit. I want to I do what I'm asked to do by my boss or whoever is over me. So that's the first thing. The second thing, put your heart into it. Put your heart into your work. Paul gives a lot of qualifiers to the slaves as how they're supposed to obey. Verse 5, with a sincere heart. Verse six, doing the will of God from the heart. Verse seven, rendering service with a good will. It's entirely possible to do what you're asked to do, the first point, but to put minimal effort into it and to do it with a complete lack of enthusiasm. And we might excuse ourselves by saying, well, listen, my heart's just not in it. Well, I'm sure that the work of the slave was not their dream job. It was menial work a lot of the time, but Paul still encourages them. Put your heart into it. Do it with enthusiasm. Give it your best effort. Um, Maybe like some of you, I enjoy going into a Chick-fil-A restaurant. Food's pretty good. I like getting the, the lemonade sweet tea mix, the Arnold Palmer. The bathrooms are clean enough, which is a bonus on a road trip. But the main reason I really go in there is because the people serving there put their heart into it. They show some enthusiasm. They actually look happy to be at work. I don't know if they're happy or not, but they, they're putting their heart into it. It's still just a fast food restaurant. I mean, it's dressed up a little bit, but that's what it is. I know, I worked there. That was my first job at a Chick-fil-A, long before Chick-fil-A was popular. I remember at um, like 7.30 in the morning, remember how they, I don't think they have it anymore, but the carrot and raisin salad, Okay, I didn't like that stuff at lunchtime, but at 7.30 in the morning, I had a huge vat of that, and I was scooping it into these little cups. It's not glamorous. But people who work there, even in this kind of low-skilled work, put their heart into it, and it shows. Whatever our job is, we can do the same. So do what you're asked to do. Put your heart into it. Third, do it with a respectful attitude. Do it with a respectful attitude. In verse five, Paul says to slaves, "Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling." Now what does he mean by that? Uh, does he mean that, well, masters are supposed to be afraid um, so are slaves are supposed to be afraid of their masters? Probably not. Because the word fear" here is used earlier in Ephesians 5, for reverence for Christ and for a wife respecting her husband. And so I think Paul may be saying um, to the slaves, "Be respectful." Show deference. Have a good attitude towards your boss. Again, we have these excuses. My boss is a terrible manager. She's not kind to anyone. She's a bad leader. She makes bad decisions. That may be true. But I don't think Paul gives us a pass on being respectful. Again, he's called slaves to treat their masters with respect. Surely, we are called to be respectful to our bosses or to the customer we serve no matter how difficult that could be. Well, how do you do that? Well, just start by saying, hey, what would make me feel respected if I was the manager, if I was the customer? And then begin to do those things. If you want to offer a different opinion, you want to disagree. Again, a lot of places that's okay to do, but do so respectfully. There's a way to disagree that makes your boss still feel respected, and there's a way to do it that does not make him feel respected. Paul goes on to say in verse 6, don't just do it when the master's watching. In other words, don't be a people pleaser. Some of us know how to play the game, don't we? We know how to play the game. We can act respectfully uh, to our boss's face, but then behind his back or her back, we're entirely disrespectful. We belittle that person to other employees, we backbite, we gossip, we undermine them at every turn. I've heard the stories. I I know some of the the culture of, of the workplaces uptown, for example. I know they're not always good. Sometimes people are just looking out for themselves. But as gospel people, we're different. We don't play by those rules. And one way we work that out is we respect our boss to her face and behind her back. So do what you're asked to do, put your heart into your work, have a respectful attitude. Fourth observation, and this is really where we see the power of the gospel that Paul is pressing down. In your work, you're serving Christ, not your boss, not the company, not even the customer. In your work, you're serving Christ. Look at verses 6 and 7. But as bond servants, slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. You see what Paul is doing here? It's incredibly subversive. I like how the New Testament scholar uh, Klein Snodgrass uh, observes. He says, Slave owners may have been pleased with the service they would get, but in the process, they lost control. For slaves now had a higher allegiance than to their owners. Slaves no longer belonged to their owners, did not really serve them, did not merely do their will, did not seek to please them, and were no different from them. They were slaves of Christ served him and did God's will. This is where Paul begins to overturn the apple cart with the gospel. He's saying to slaves, you don't really belong to your masters. You belong to Christ. You're free. And all the work that you do for them, which he still asks them to do, is done for Christ. Then he'll go on in verse 8 and he'll say and Christ will reward you for the good that you do. Again, if we take this seriously, it undermines the justification for slavery because it dignifies the slaves as fully human because they belong to Christ. But for us in the modern workplace, it gives a totally different motivation for work. Those first three things I mentioned are hard, doing what we're asked to do, not always easy, putting your heart into it and being respectful. The only way to do that is to have a different master in mind, Jesus Christ. Serving Jesus in our workplace is a powerful motivation. We're not doing it for our boss, company, customer. We're not even doing it to advance our career or to make money. We're doing it for Christ. We serve Him. We render service, as Paul says, with a goodwill as to the Lord and not to man. So let me just ask you, is this how you think about work? If it's not, could I encourage you to begin to invite Jesus into the picture, into the world of, of your workplace? Imagine him there as you sit in meetings, you crunch numbers, you swing a hammer. As you speak with your boss, I use this illustration, uh, I think, with marriage, but as you speak to your boss, imagine Jesus just beyond his shoulder, her shoulder, just, just standing there. How would you speak to Christ? If we apply those things at work, it will begin to impact our relationships. We come to verse 9. Paul switches as he's done. He verse addresses slaves, but now he's going to address masters. And he only gives them one verse, but what he says is radical. Masters, do the same to them. Do the same to them? That's unheard of. He, he's totally subverting things. He's just called the slaves to practice submission. He's told slaves to have this respectful attitude, to put their heart into it, to do it as they were treating the Lord. And now he's calling masters to do the same to slaves, to respect their slaves, not just by eye service, but to respect them all the time, even behind their back, to show their slaves goodwill, and to treat them how? As they would treat Christ, not even themselves, as they would treat Jesus Christ. When they look at their slave, when they speak to him, when they are to imagine Jesus there right beyond his shoulder. If that happened, it would utterly change how masters treated their slaves. In the long run, the only logical conclusion would be, you have to set that slave free. But in the short run, it would change how they were treated day to day. Many many of you in here have employees. You have people that report to you. And all of us might not think about it like this, but all of us, regardless of whether or not we're employed, have people who serve us in an economic relationship. The waitress at the restaurant you might go to today for Mother's Day, The, the checkout clerk at the grocery store. It's the same sort of thing. They're serving you. And so Paul would ask us, how are we treating those who report to us? How are we treating those over whom we have some authority? Are we submitting our lives to them? What would that even look like? Are we coming under them to lift them up? Are we treating them as a human being? Are we thinking about their needs and their desires? Are we treating them as we would treat Christ? That's what Paul is calling masters to do. It's it's a radical word. It turns relationships upside down. And then he goes on and he tells masters to stop your threatening. You see, masters, like bosses, have authority in the relationship. But Paul is saying, do not abuse that authority. Someone in power has um, the ability to threaten someone, whether that's firing them, or back then it could have been beatings or something else. You could threaten them to get your will done. Paul says, that's not what power is for. Go back in the sermons we've talked about, what power really is for, what authority is really for. God has given power and authority whatever type it is so that you can love so that you can bless, so that you can lift up the person in that relationship. So Paul says, stop threatening. That's an inappropriate use of power. So in these verses, and I I think I've just begun to scratch the surface, you could press down a lot deeper into them, but there's some really practical ideas. I mean, the stuff that we could take into our workplaces tomorrow and Tuesday and Wednesday. But there's also some stuff in these verses that speak to a lot bigger picture ideas. Not just our day-to-day reality, but really how the world works, how society functions. And so I want to conclude by just asking three questions to get us thinking about what this teaching in the world might look like. First question is about work, second is about human beings, and the third is about our economy and the society. So first work. The question is this: What is good work? What is good work? We go back and we read the first few chapters of Genesis and we see that work was created good before the fall. Part of human being um, was having meaningful work to do. We also see in Genesis that because of the fall, work was filled with futility and frustration. It got a lot harder. But now, because of the gospel breaking into the world, the kingdom coming, it's reversing some of the effects of the fall. And it doesn't just do that for us as individuals. It actually does it in every part of human life, including work. So what is good work? Is good work just the work that satisfies us? Or is it work that makes a positive and direct impact on society? Or can good work simply be work that is done for the Lord in the way that Paul speaks about it in Ephesians 6? It seems that if a slave's menial work can be pleasing to the Lord and receive his reward, that any work can be good work provided it's not inherently evil, which some is. These are the kind of questions that we have to ask about work. We have to think differently, not just accept what the world says about work. I think there's two primary things the world says about work. It's a necessary evil to earn money, just to survive, or it's this way to achieve personal gratification. But what if work was actually this way to bear witness to the kingdom of God and to the gospel, and what if the way which we worked regardless of the actual task, had everything to do with that. So that's the first question. What is good work? Second question. How do we determine the value of a human being? How do we determine the value of a human being? In every generation, in every culture, Rome, just like Charlotte, we tend to value human beings based on their economic and social power. Slaves and masters, that's an ancient example. Today, there are examples all around us. Some of you um, may have spent a good deal of time in a hospital. I've done that before, and you begin to observe how a hospital works. There's a clear pecking order. You have doctors at the top. They're the most paid. They're the most respected. They have the titles. When they come into a room, everybody gets out of their way. And then you have nurses, still very skilled, still paid pretty well. Then you have other less skilled work. People maybe do the transportation down to the procedure or the food service. And then finally at the bottom, you have the janitorial staff the people that clean up the stuff that no one wants to touch. In verse 9, Paul points out to the masters, those high in society in Rome, that they have a master in heaven. He says it's the Lord. And then he writes this, and there is no partiality with him, no partiality with the Lord. In other words, in terms of value, master and slave mean nothing to God. To him, CEO and janitor are the same. God values people in a very different way than we're used to doing. Economic and social power don't buy you extra credit. Now, he still allows for different roles in society. He hasn't abolished that. We still need CEOs. We still need janitors. That's part of our world. But how might the church start embracing a different value system for people? What if we treated people according to a kingdom value system rather than just defaulting to social and economic power? I think this is what Jesus was getting at. The first line of the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I don't think Jesus was saying that we had to become poor in order to get into heaven. I don't think he meant that being poor had more intrinsic value than rich. Rather, he was subverting the world's value system. He was saying, that's how you're used to doing it, but I'm telling you, it's completely different. It's based on the kingdom of God. And I think that's what Paul is doing. He's working that out practically in Ephesians 6 between slaves and masters. Third and final question. How might the gospel speak to our economic structures today? How might the gospel speak into that? Slavery in the ancient world was an economic institution. And everyone just took it for granted. It's just the way it was. But then Paul began preaching this gospel and, and eventually, it took a long time, but eventually it changed it. And even though Paul didn't take slavery head on, the way that he applied the gospel to relationships began to change things. Friends, the gospel does the same thing today. Today there are economic structures and practices that are not good. And we need to be able to say that without freaking out of what party we're associated with or who we're voting for. There are economic things in our world that are not good. Can we agree to that? The question for the church is, well, how might the gospel apply to those places? How might it subvert injustice? How might it usher in more of God's will? Isn't that what we're praying for? Every Sunday when we, see, when we say in our, our communion liturgy that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, do we just mean that for us personally or do we really wanna see God's will everywhere as the waters of the ocean cover the sea that the glory of God, the will of God, the kingdom of God would be felt in every single segment of society. Well, so the temptation though is to use government to do that. The temptation is to say, well, well, we'll just mandate something and do this and that, will bring that about. The temptation, just like it was for the disciples of Jesus, is to use political power. And what did he have to say about that? No, that's actually not the way the kingdom comes. Starts with the gospel. Starts as small as a mustard seed, he says. It starts with how we begin to treat people, to love people, to apply things differently and in relationships especially of difference in social and economic power. A week or two ago, there was a story on the news about the CEO of the Chobani Yogurt Company. Maybe some of you saw this. He did something very surprising. Uh, Chobani is still a privately held company, hasn't gone public yet. But Hamdi Ulukaya, I think is from Turkey, he's the CEO, he he gave his almost 2,000 full-time employees a 10% ownership share in his multi-billion dollar company so that when it is sold or it goes public, they're going to benefit greatly. But here's what I love. He didn't do this as, look at me, I'm the patron, you all owe me something. I am so great and high and mighty. Instead, he wrote this. This isn't a gift. It's a mutual promise to work together with a shared purpose and responsibility. It's a different way to do business. It's a different way to think about economic relationships, the relationships between an employer and employees. It wasn't mandated It's a freely chosen act of goodwill. That's just a small example, really. I think the church and the power of the Spirit can come up with things a lot better than that. We can begin to say, what does it look like for the gospel to work out in this relationship in my life? Especially a relationship where there's, again, that difference in power and economics. As it does so, it will begin to affect things like a little seed begins to grow begins to fill the whole garden, begins to take up the space. That's what the gospel can do in our lives. Let's pray.